Section 15 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Dole. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 8, Part 2, 9. Accordingly, Peter, who was perfectly instructed by his master as to the extent of what was permitted to him, leaves nothing more to himself or others than to dispense the doctrine delivered by God. Quote, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Unquote. 1 Peter 4.11 That is, not hesitatingly, as those are wont whose convictions are imperfect, but with a full confidence which becomes a servant of God provided with a sure message. What else is this than to banish all the inventions of the human mind, whatever be the head which may have devised them, that the pure word of God may be taught and learned in the church of the faithful, than to discard the decrees or rather fictions of men, whatever be their rank, that the decrees of God alone may remain steadfast. These are the weapons of our warfare, unquote, which, quote, are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, unquote. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Here is the supreme power with which the pastors of the church, by whatever name they are called, should be invested, namely, to dare all boldly for the word of God, compelling all the virtue, glory, wisdom and rank of the world to yield and obey its majesty, to command all from the highest to the lowest, trusting to its power, to build up the house of Christ and overthrow the house of Satan, to feed the sheep and chase away the wolves, to instruct and exhort the docile, to accuse, rebuke, and subdue the rebellious and petulant, to bind and loose, in fine, if need be, to fire and fulminate, but all in the word of God. Although, as I have observed, there is this difference between the apostles and their successors, that they were sure and authentic amanuenses of the Holy Spirit, and therefore their writings are to be regarded as the oracles of God, whereas others have no other office than to teach what is delivered and sealed in the Holy Scriptures. We conclude, therefore, that it does not now belong to faithful ministers to coin some new doctrine, but simply to adhere to the doctrine to which all without exception are made subject. When I say this, I mean to show not only what each individual, but what the whole church is bound to do. In regard to individuals, Paul certainly had been appointed an apostle to the Corinthians, and yet he declares that he has no dominion over their faith. 2 Corinthians 1.24 
who will now presume to arrogate a dominion to which the apostle declares that he himself was not competent? But if he had acknowledged such license in teaching, that every pastor could justly demand implicit faith in whatever he delivered, he never would have laid it down as a rule to the Corinthians that while two or three prophets spoke, the others should judge, and that if anything was revealed to one sitting by, the first should be silent. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 and 30. Thus he spared none, but subjected the authority of all to the censure of the word of God. But it will be said that with regard to the whole church the case is different. I answer that in another place Paul meets the objection also, when he says that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 In other words, if faith depends upon the word of God alone, if it regards and reclines on it alone, what place is left for any word of man? He who knows what faith is can never hesitate here, for it must possess a strength sufficient to stand intrepid and invincible against Satan, the machinations of hell, and the whole world. This strength can be found only in the word of God. Then the reason to which we ought here to have regard is universal. God deprives man of the power of producing any new doctrine, in order that he alone may be our master in spiritual teaching, as he alone is true, and can neither lie nor deceive. This reason applies not less to the whole church than to every individual believer. 10. But if this power of the church, which is here described, be contrasted with that which spiritual tyrants, falsely styling themselves bishops and religious prelates, have now for several ages exercised among the people of God, there will be no more agreement than that of Christ with Belial. It is not my intention here to unfold the manner, the unworthy manner, in which they have used their tyranny. I will only state the doctrine which they maintain to the present day, first in writing, and then by fire and sword, taking it for granted that a universal council is a true representative of the church, they set out with this principle, and at the same time lay it down as incontrovertible, that such councils are under the immediate guidance of the Holy Spirit, and therefore cannot err. But as they rule councils, they constitute them. They in fact claim for themselves whatever they maintain to be due to councils. Therefore they will have our faith to stand and fall at their pleasure, so that whatever they have determined on either side must be firmly seated in our minds. What they approve must be approved by us without any doubt. What they condemn we also must hold to be justly condemned. Meanwhile, at their own caprice and in contempt of the word of God, they coin doctrines to which they in this way demand our assent, declaring that no man can be a Christian unless he assent to all their dogmas, affirmative as well as negative, if not with explicit, yet with implicit faith, because it belongs to the church to frame new articles of faith. 11. First, let us hear by what arguments they prove that this authority was given to the church, 
and then we shall see how far their allegations concerning the church will avail them. The church, they say, has the noble promise that she will never be deserted by Christ her spouse, but be guided by his Spirit into all truth. But of the promises which they are wont to allege, many were given not less to private believers than to the whole church. For although the Lord spake to the twelve apostles, when he said, quote, Lo, I am with you alway, even to the end of the world, unquote, Matthew 28, 20, and again, quote, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you for ever, even the Spirit of truth, unquote, John 14, 16, 17. He made these promises not only to the twelve, but to each of them separately, nay, in like manner, to other disciples whom he had already received, or was afterwards to receive. When they interpret these promises, which are replete with consolation, in such a way as if they were not given to any particular Christian, but to the whole church together, what else is it but to deprive Christians of the confidence which they ought to thence have derived, to animate them in their course? I deny not that the whole body of the faithful is furnished with a manifold variety of gifts, and endued with a far larger and richer treasure of heavenly wisdom than each Christian apart. Nor do I mean that this was said of believers in general, as implying that all possess the spirit of wisdom and knowledge in an equal degree. But we are not to give permission to the adversaries of Christ to defend a bad cause by wresting Scripture from its proper meaning. Omitting this, however, I simply hold what is true, namely that the Lord is always present with His people, and guides them by His Spirit. He is the Spirit not of error, ignorance, falsehood, or darkness, but of sure revelation, wisdom, truth, and light, from whom they can, without deception, learn the things which have been given to them, 1 Corinthians 2.12. In other words, quote, what is the hope of their calling, and what the riches of the glory of their inheritance in the saints, unquote, Ephesians 1.18. But while believers, even those of them who are endured with more excellent graces, obtain in the present life only the first fruits, and as it were a foretaste of the Spirit, nothing better remains to them than under a consciousness of their weakness to confine themselves anxiously within the limits of the word of God, lest in following their own sense too far they forthwith stray from the right path, being left without that spirit by whose teaching alone truth is discerned from falsehood. For all confess with Paul that, quote, they have not yet reached the goal, unquote. Philippians 3.12 Accordingly, they rather aim at daily progress than glory in perfection. 12. But, it will be objected, that whatever is attributed in part to any of the saints belongs in complete fullness to the church. Although there is some semblance of truth in this, I deny that it is true. God, indeed, measures out the gifts of His Spirit to each of the members, so that nothing necessary to the whole body is wanting, since the gifts are bestowed for the common advantage. 
The riches of the church, however, are always of such a nature that much is wanting to that supreme perfection of which our opponents boast. Still the church is not left destitute in any part, but always has as much as is sufficient, for the Lord knows what her necessities require. But to keep her in humility and pious modesty, he bestows no more on her than he knows to be expedient. I am aware, it is usual here to object, that Christ hath cleansed the church, quote, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, unquote, Ephesians 5, 26, 27, and that it is therefore called the, quote, pillar and ground of truth, unquote, 1 Timothy 3, 15. But the former passage rather shows what Christ daily performs in it than what he has already perfected. For if he daily sanctifies all his people, purifies, refines them, and wipes away their stains, it is certain that they have still some spots and wrinkles, and that their sanctification is in some manner defective. How vain and fabulous is it to suppose that the church, all whose members are somewhat spotted and impure, is completely holy and spotless in every part. It is true, therefore, that the church is sanctified by Christ, but here the commencement of her sanctification only is seen. The end and entire completion will be effected when Christ, the Holy of Holies, shall truly and completely fill her with his holiness. It is true, also, that her stains and wrinkles have been effaced, but so that the process is continued every day until Christ at his advent will entirely remove every remaining defect. For unless we admit this, we shall be constrained to hold with the Pelagians that the righteousness of believers is perfected in this life, like the Cathari and Donatists, we shall tolerate no infirmity in the church. The other passage as we have elsewhere seen, chapter 1, section 10, has a very different meaning from what they put upon it. For when Paul instructed Timothy and trained him to the office of a true bishop, he says he did it in order that he might learn how to behave himself in the church of God and to make him devote himself to the work with greater seriousness and zeal, he adds that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And what else do these words mean than just that the truth of God is preserved in the church and preserved by the instrumentality of preaching? As he elsewhere says that Christ, quote, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, unquote, quote, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, who is the head, even Christ. Unquote. Ephesians 4, 11, 14, 15. The reason, therefore, why the truth, instead of being extinguished in the world, remains unimpaired, is because he has the church as a faithful guardian by whose aid and ministry it is maintained. But if this guardianship consists in the ministry of the prophets and apostles, 
it follows that the whole depends upon this, namely that the word of the Lord is faithfully preserved and maintained in purity. 13. And that my readers may the better understand the hinge on which the question chiefly turns, I will briefly explain what our opponents demand and what we resist. When they deny that the church can err, their end and meaning are to this effect. Since the church is governed by the Spirit of God, she can walk safely without the word. In whatever direction she moves, she cannot think or speak anything but the truth, and hence if she determine anything without or beside the word of God, it must be regarded in no other light than if it were a divine oracle. If we grant the first point, namely that the church cannot err in things necessary to salvation, our meaning is that she cannot err because she has altogether discarded her own wisdom and submits to the teaching of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Here then is the difference. They place the authority of the church without the word of God. We annex it to the word and allow it not to be separated from it. And is it strange if the spouse and pupil of Christ is so subject to her Lord and Master as to hang carefully and constantly on his lips? In every well-ordered house, the wife obeys the command of her husband. In every well-regulated school, the doctrine of the Master only is listened to. Wherefore, let not the church be wise in herself, nor think anything of herself, but let her consider her wisdom terminated when he ceases to speak. In this way she will distrust all the inventions of her own reason, and when she leans on the word of God she will not waver in diffidence or hesitation, but rest in full assurance and unwavering constancy. Trusting to the liberal promises which she has received, she will have the means of nobly maintaining her faith never doubting that the Holy Spirit is always present with her to be the perfect guide of her path. At the same time, she will remember the use to which God wishes to be derived from His Spirit. Quote, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. Unquote. John 16.13 How? Quote, he shall bring to your remembrance all things whatsoever I have said unto you. Unquote. He declares, therefore, that nothing more is to be expected of his spirit than to enlighten our minds to perceive the truth of his doctrine. Hence Chrysostom most shrewdly observes, quote, Many boast of the Holy Spirit, but with those who speak their own it is a false pretense. As Christ declared that he spoke not of himself, John 12.50, 14.10, because he spoke according to the law and the prophets, so if anything contrary to the gospel is obtruded under the name of the Holy Spirit, let us not believe it. For as Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, so is the Spirit the fulfillment of the gospel. Unquote. Thus far Chrysostom. We may now easily infer how erroneously our opponents act in vaunting of the Holy Spirit for no other end than to give the credit of his name to strange doctrines extraneous to the word of God, whereas he himself desires to be inseparably connected with the word of God. And Christ declares the same thing of him 
when he promises him to the church, and so indeed it is. The soberness which our Lord once prescribed to his church, he wishes to be perpetually observed. He forbade that anything should be added to his word, and that anything should be taken from it. This is the inviolable decree of God and the Holy Spirit, a decree which our opponents endeavor to annul whenever they pretend that the church is guided by the Spirit without the word. 14. Here again they mutter that the church behoved to add something to the writings of the apostles, or that the apostles themselves behoved orally to supply what they had less clearly taught since Christ had said to them, quote, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now, unquote. John 16.12. And that these are the points which have been received without writing, merely by use and custom. But what effrontery is this? The disciples, I admit, were ignorant and almost indocile when our Lord thus addressed them. But were they still in this condition when they committed his doctrine to writing? so as afterwards to be under the necessity of supplying orally that which through ignorance they had omitted to write? If they were guided by the Spirit of truth, unto all truth, when they published their writings, what prevented them from embracing a full knowledge of the gospel and consigning it therein? But let us grant them what they ask, provided they point out the things which behoved to be revealed without writing. Should they presume to attempt this, I will address them in the words of Augustine. Quote, when the Lord is silent, who of us may say, this is, or that is? Or if we should presume to say it, how do we prove it? Unquote. But why do I contend superfluously? Every child knows that in the writings of the apostles, which these men represent as mutilated and incomplete, is contained the result of that revelation which the Lord then promised to them. 15. What, say they, did not Christ declare that nothing which the church teaches and decrees can be gainsaid when he enjoined that every one who presumes to contradict should be regarded as a heathen man and a publican? Matthew 18.17 First, there is here no mention of doctrine, but her authority to censure. For correction is asserted, in order that none who had been admonished or reprimanded might oppose her judgment. But to say nothing of this, it is very strange that those men are so lost to all sense of shame that they hesitate not to plume themselves on this declaration. For what prey will they make of it but just that the consent of the church, a consent never given, but to the word of God, is not to be despised. The church is to be heard, say they. Who denies this, since she decides nothing but according to the word of God? If they demand more than this, let them know that the words of Christ give them no countenance. I ought not to seem contentious, when I so vehemently insist that we cannot concede to the church any new doctrine, in other words, allow her to teach and oracularly deliver more than the Lord had revealed in his word. Men of sense see how great the danger is if so much authority is once conceded to men. They see also how wide a door is opened 
for the jeers and cavils of the ungodly if we admit that Christians are to receive the opinions of men as if they were oracles. We may add that our Saviour, speaking according to the circumstances of his times, gave the name of church to the Sanhedrin, that the disciples might learn afterwards to revere the sacred meetings of the church. Hence it would follow that single cities and districts would have equal liberty in coining dogmas. 16. The examples which they bring do not avail them. They say that Peter baptism proceeds not so much on a plain command of Scripture as on a decree of the church. It would be a miserable asylum if in defense of Peter baptism we were obliged to betake ourselves to the bare authority of the church. But it will be made plain enough elsewhere, chapter 16, that it is far otherwise. In like manner, when they object that we nowhere find in the Scriptures what was declared in the Council of Nicaea, namely that the Son is consubstantial with the Father, they do a grievous injustice to the fathers, as if they had rashly condemned Arius for not swearing to their words, though professing the whole of that doctrine which is contained in the writings of the apostles and prophets. I admit that the expression does not exist in Scripture, but seeing it is there so often declared that there is one God, and Christ is so often called true and eternal God, one with the Father, what do the Nicene fathers do when they affirm that he is of one essence, then simply declare the genuine meaning of Scripture? Theodoret relates that Constantine, in opening their meetings, spoke as follows, quote, In the discussion of divine matters, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit stands recorded. The Gospels and the apostolic writings with the oracles of the prophets fully show us the meaning of the deity. Therefore, laying aside discord, let us take the exposition of questions from the words of the Spirit. Unquote. There was none who opposed this sound advice, none who objected that the church could add something of her own, that the Spirit did not reveal all things to the apostles, or at least that they did not deliver them to posterity, and so forth. If the point on which our opponents insist is true, Constantine first was in error in robbing the church of her power, and secondly, when none of the bishops rose to vindicate it, their silence was a kind of perfidy, and made them traitors to ecclesiastical law. But since Theodoret relates that they readily embraced what the emperor said, it is evident that this new dogma was then wholly unknown. End of section 15